Good morning, and thank you very much for that, Leith. I appreciate it very much. Uh, it's good to be here with you this morning. I very much appreciate the opportunity to share with you this morning, and uh, just such a blessing for, to uh, get to experience the talented music team that you have here at this church. It's always appreciated, and everything that goes on behind the scenes. Bo was very helpful this week when communicating, and just appreciate being here, and I uh, look forward to sharing with you this morning. And I hope all of us can take a moment and just savor the freedom that we have to join together corporately to worship and fellowship with one another. And it's something that we cannot take lightly. Uh, we're going to be examining the text of 1 Peter today. That's where we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. And as I'm delivering this message, you may wonder to yourself, well, how did you arrive at that passage? Well, it's no secret. I've been, I've been teaching through this book for probably since early summer of 1 Peter, and this just happened to be where we landed. So that's, uh, that's where we're at, is in 1 Peter chapter 2. And I just would remind you that God's Word is always relevant. I'm always a little bit annoyed when I hear people advertise relevant preaching. Uh, it makes it sound as if the Bible is irrelevant, but this or that particular church or, or speaker can make it relevant. The Bible is always relevant, and if it doesn't seem relevant, that is more of a reflection on the teaching than it is on the Bible itself, and we need to remember that in this day and age. But this particular passage is ripe with meaning when we consider the climate of the church in America and the culture of this country. Uh, there are many temptations, many temptations for hateful or spiteful feelings toward opponents and those we may disagree with. It tends to be very difficult to me personally. I, I like to be right and I like to argue and I like to walk away from the argument knowing that I've won and that's, a, that's not necessarily a good thing. And it's good to know that the biblical writers all the way back then knew that we would be tempted by such feelings. And we must remember, if you remember anything else I say, we must remember that love is to dominate the attitude and actions of the Christian. And I'm 45 years old and I've been a Christian for a couple of decades and I still forget this. Love is to dominate the attitude and actions of the Christian. And let's take a look at our passage today and see the practical ways that Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, would have us to live and act towards others, whether we agree with them or not. And I would have you stand for the reading of God's word and then remain standing for an opening prayer. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, and the Word of God says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Father, we thank you for this day. I thank you for the opportunity to be here. And again, I thank you for the opportunity that we have in this nation to gather together freely to worship you. And Father, help us to never take that for granted. I pray that you would give us ears to hear, starting with the, myself. Give me ears to hear. Help us to obey your word and to seek you in a time that is dark. Father, that we could be a light in a world that is, that is truly dark and growing darker. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to be here. I pray that your Holy Spirit would dominate in this place today and that we would go out of here in obedience to Jesus Christ. We thank you for all that you do for us. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. 
So just as a quick recap, I always like to give context, and I always encourage you when you're reading the Bible, start with the chapter one, verse one, and move through it. And I highly commend the book of 1 Peter in our, in our state where we find ourselves in our country, because Peter is writing to Christians who he knows are getting ready to face persecution, okay? That's the purpose of Peter's letter. He's writing to Christians that are dispersed through Asia Minor. He refers to them as aliens and sojourners. And I think we need to remember that. As we live in this world, we need to remember that as Christian people, we're aliens here. This is not our home. We're just a passing through, as the old hymn used to say. He encourages them in their position as God's particular people, saved by his grace through Jesus Christ. That's what he's building on in 1 Peter chapter one. And chapter two is a transition where he's gonna start practically directing them <clears throat> towards sanctification and holiness. And that's where we find ourselves. Chapter two begins the practical application of sanctification. Now that's just a churchy word for growing and progressing in holy living. That's what the word sanctification means. And that's what Peter is aiming at here, starting in, in chapter two. And he's started a little bit back in chapter one, and we're gonna talk about that in just a second. But let's, and let's do that now. Let's consider the context from the end of 1 Peter chapter one, particularly look at verse 22, if you would. Peter says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, and that simply means since they have believed the gospel, that's what he's saying, for what have they believed the gospel? What is the outcome of believing the gospel? That's what Peter's getting at there in verse 22. Well, it's a sincere brotherly love, and then he follows that up with a command, and he says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That's what he says. So considering 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, and then linking it with our passage today, 2-1 could kind of read like this. I can change my paper. Since you have purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, now we skip to 2.1 and say, he says, put away all of these things. So the so there in chapter two, verse one is linking back to verse 22 where he's talking about loving one another earnestly. And how should we love one another earnestly? That's the question. And that's where we're gonna dive into our passage. How should we love one another earnestly? Well, by putting away some things, okay? by changing attitudes that injure one another, by putting away, the idea of putting away carries the essence of a command. It is not passive, and that's so very important for us to remember. The whole let go and let God thing, I, I get it at some point. Salvation, first and last, beginning to end, is by the grace of God, we understand that. Sanctification, we play a part in that. And Peter's telling us this. He's giving us a, a command here. We're charged to do it, is what he's saying. These attributes that we are commanded to put away are the opposite of loving one another earnestly from a pure heart. So that's what we're looking at, the negative words. And really what we're gonna do here is a word study. And I love word studies because I like words. But the first negative attribute, and remember, remember all the way through this, each one of these words that he's choosing are in conflict with loving others. Okay, so what's the first word? Malice. Malice simply means wickedness, which comes from within a person. That's describing the sinful nature, okay? The Greek word is kakia. It's called vicious character. Have you ever heard people say that's a bunch of kaka? I think that's where it comes from. It's bad stuff, all right? This vicious character, this malice, or this badness and quality, as it said. Peter says, put it away, and it's intentional viciousness, okay? That's what the word malice has. It's a, it's a, 
You, we hear this word when we talk about court proceedings. When are they trying to prove what? They're trying to p- prove malicious intent. There's something intentional about this viciousness. And he's saying, put that away. I used to read a book to the boys called The Priest with Dirty Clothes. And it's, it's about salvation. But there's a, a character in the book that represents Satan. And he's always accusing the priest. He's the, he's the accuser, pointing his finger. And his name in the book is Malice. Okay, it's wickedness which comes from within a person and it's, it is intentional viciousness. Moving on to the next word, deceit. This word, is, it's like the old word guile. We don't use that word very much, but it's, it's an idea of slyness, okay? Aiming at deception is what deceit means. It's kind of a cousin to lying, but not exactly. It's not telling the whole of it. Does that make sense? Needing to come out on top by whatever means. That's one way to kind of put that in a shell of what deceit is. Needing to come out on top by whatever means necessary, okay? There's an underhandedness to deceit. When Jesus calls Nathaniel, he says, ah, Nathaniel, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. He is who he is up front, all right? Moving on through, hypocrisy. I think we can just skip that one. I don't think we probably even need to cover hypocrisy, do we? Uh, Yes, laughter. (laughs) Exactly right. Uh, Comes directly from the Greek word, hypocrisis. It comes directly from the Greek language over to us as hypocrisy. And this word comes to us from the theater, okay? It comes from the theater. A stage actor who wears a mask to conceal his or her person. You might recognize these. This is the idea of the play. They would don these masks to cover up who they really were. And you would remember back then, all actors were males. So if there was a a female part to be played, they'd put the mask on, cover up their real identity. That's where we get the idea of hypocrisy. Walter Bauer in his massive Greek lexicon defines the word hypocrisy as this, and I like his definition. He says, to create a public impression that is at odds with one's real purposes or motivations. Clear as a bell. To create a public impression that is at odds with one's real purposes or motivations. It's play acting. It's outward show. Anyone have any trouble with this one? If I could balance, I would raise a foot. I have trouble with this. I can remember uh, years ago when we attended at um, Pleasant Ridge, I taught the adult Sunday school class for years. And it was during a time in my life when the older boys were little and life was absolute chaos from start to finish. And I remember some of the, dry, the rides to church. And... Uh, <laughs> Some of the rides to church. And sometimes before the ride ended, we weren't quite done with our argument, okay? And Candace and I might be in the process of talking about each other's heritage and, and getting into a, a pretty good uh, argument. And we step out of the van and walk in the church and it's, hey, how are you? Oh, couldn't be better. It's that type of thing. Does anybody have any struggles with that? Well, how did Jesus feel about hypocritical people? And particularly, I would say, the spiritual type. How did Jesus feel about such people? Let's turn to Matthew 23 right quick. Matthew 23. Matthew chapter 23, and I believe I'm just, I'm just gonna go through a little bit, but starting at verse 23. 
Jesus uh, uh, did not mince words with the Pharisees. And remember the Pharisees were the hypocritical spiritual leaders that wanted to be seen before men, but inside, listen to what Jesus says. I'm gonna tell you something. You don't really get the context of this if you're just reading through it, but Jesus is not happy with these guys. Listen to Matthew 23, 23. He says, woe to you. And he says that over and over again. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. In other words, the Jews, the Pharisees he's talking about would want to be seen before men taking even little parts of their mint and tithing the 10% so everybody can look at them and say, oh, wow, did you see brother so-and-so? He tied even a tenth of his piece of mint there. It's all for self-aggrandizement and he's lighting them up here. Verse 25, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Do you get the idea? And I was, as I was considering the word hypocrisy, I asked myself, okay, how is hypocrisy unloving? Because we, remember, we have to keep that tie. How is hypocrisy unloving? Bad, yes, but how is it unloving? And I believe the answer is that hypocrisy is self-centered. Anything self-centered is unloving. We've all heard the Greek word agape, this love that which God describes his love for his people, agape love. And one way to define agape love is that it is selfless. Hypocrisy is the opposite. It is self-centered. Now, who would you say is the consummate hypocrite in the New Testament? Who betrayed Jesus? Judas, right? He betrayed Christ for 30 pieces of silver. And how did he do it? He was a pretender. Hypocrisy is feigning something. You're pretending to be something that you're not. On a more down-to-earth level, I, I believe that this is why it can be so destructive to children. And I'm gonna tell you something. Kids can smell a hypocrite from a mile away. We say it in jest, do as I say, not as I do. But church, don't, we can't pretend that even as Christian people that we're somehow without sin. Do not try to convey a holier-than-thou attitude. Remember Jesus' punishing words to the Pharisees as we just read. They were portraying something false. Always trying to paint yourself in the best light injures those around you. It is the opposite of love. On the other hand, don't be afraid. How many times have you heard this? Well, I don't go to church because the church is full of hypocrites. Anybody ever heard that? I've heard that a lot of times, and I, I can't remember who it was. I think it was D. James Kennedy that said his answer to that was always, yep, and there's room for one more. <laughs> Next word, moving on, envy. Envy is defined, get this, does anybody ever feel this? Envy is the feeling of displeasure produced by witnessing or hearing of the advantage or prosperity of others. That's what envy is. Feeling displeased when we see someone else succeeding. Jealousy, okay? It's such a destructive attribute. And as I was thinking about jealousy and I was thinking about envy, the word coveting comes to my mind because it's tied. And, if, and I thought to myself, and I've heard this taught before, but how many people would think when God makes his top 10 list of things not to do, 
or to do, the 10 commandments. How many people would put coveting on the top 10? Murder, yeah, I can see that. Lying, stealing, I can see all those. But coveting, you know, thou shall not covet thy neighbor's wife, his lake house or his razor, etc., etc. that kind of thing. Coveting, well, coveting leads to envy. It's the first step in the process. Coveting says, I want what you have. Envy says, I hate you because you have what I want. Church, these are everyday temptations, everyday temptations. When people wonder, how in the 21st century do you Christians believe what the Bible says? And I'll tell you how. The Bible so accurately describes and understands the human condition. It tells me all about myself. A lot of things I don't wanna hear. When was the last time you heard a doctor or psychologist say, you know, your problem might be related to envy? But how many of our problems could lead back to such things? I'm gonna tell you, being a malcontent, you know what a malcontent, always something's oh ho-hum, something's always wrong. Being a malcontent has driven many a person to despair and many a marriage to ruin. Find its root in envy. Be content with what God has given you. Envy can produce bitterness and misery. And Peter says, put that away. That's what he's telling us. Next word, slander. The act of speaking ill of another, evil speech, defamation, detraction. Oh my. The slanderers are the fault finders. Did you see what so-and-so wore to church last week? Did you hear about poor brother so-and-so and his struggle with alcohol? We need to put him on the prayer list. There's nothing wrong with praying with brother so-and-so, but if your aim is to talk about his struggle outwardly, I'm not sure your heart's in the right place. It's closely tied with gossip or mean speech. And beloved, we look at these attributes or ways of acting, and we sometimes think, oh, ho-hum, Aaron, we all have our struggles. It's not that big of a deal. We all have our struggles. What's the big deal? Well, turn to Romans 1. Romans 1 in verse 28, we're going to read here at the end of Romans. And here at the end of Romans in verse 1, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 28, we find the Apostle Paul's, what I would call the end of the road cultural norms, okay? These are end of the road cultural norms that Paul is going to lay out for us in just a minute. And listen to some of these words as we go through them. Listen to these words that will incite the fire of God's judgment. Listen to this, Romans 1, 20, uh, excuse me, starting at verse 28. Now he's talking about a culture that's turned its back on God, on the knowledge of God, and this is what he says. And since they did not see fit, they, the people who have turned their back on God, did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Now listen to these words, listen to this list. How many of these words are familiar from our, our message this morning? They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. How many times do you think disobedient to parents would make it on the list in our world today? You ever think about that? 
Paul lists it, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. There's no need for me to expand on that passage. Look out the window. Get on social media for five minutes. Watch the news. And what does Peter command? He says, put all of that away. Put it away, church. How, Aaron? How are we supposed to put this away? How can we be helped along to follow this command that Peter gives? And he gives the answer right there in verse two. He doesn't leave us helpless, church. We're never left helpless if we look to the word of God. He says in verse two, like newborn infants long for the pure, mil- pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Now you can link this part of the passage with the end of chapter one and verses 24 and 25 where he's already talked about the fact that the word of God will remain forever. That's what he's talking about when he refers to spiritual milk. He's talking about the word of God that stands forever. There's no new sentence that begins at verse two in the original language. It's all one sentence, verses one and two. And it might be rendered like this. Therefore, putting aside all of these things, instead, long for the spiritual milk or the pure milk. See how he's contrasting that. Put this away and instead do this. Peter here implies that putting away unloving practices is necessary for spiritual growth. For the two verses are part of one long command. Someone who is practicing deceit or envy or slander or any one of these will not be able to truly long for the pure spiritual milk. Does that make sense? Beloved, sinful habits or sinful patterns of life inhibit spiritual growth. They inhibit spiritual growth. It's that simple. How many times have you heard this? Well, I just don't feel that I'm growing spiritually. The Bible's just stale to me. It just, it doesn't have that pop that it used to have. Well, what does your life look like? I mean, we can all ask ourselves that question. I've been in that situation where I say, you know, I'm not just not growing spiritually. I have no taste for the Bible. Well, reflect inward a little bit. What does my life look like? Likewise, if you're feeding on the pure milk or the word of God, you will be less likely to struggle with these sinful patterns. It's not complicated. It's very difficult in practice sometimes, but it's not a complicated issue. And don't be mistaken here. Newborn babes does not imply new Christians, okay? It's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about, okay, new Christian, read the Bible so you can be a better Christian. That's not what he's saying. It's a word play. Some of these... People in Peter's audience had been Christians for decades. What does a newborn desire above anything in this world? What does a newborn want? Milk, period. That's about it. Milk, little nap time, little diaper change, but back to milk. It's what its focus is. It's all it wants. It's what it needs. They're eager for milk. They need it frequently. It nourishes them. They cannot live long without it. Reminds me when I, when I see uh, Peter kind of talking about food in relationship to God's word, it, it reminded me of Jeremiah 15, 16, where Jeremiah said, your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. Your words were found and I ate them. And listen to what he says. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. By taking in pure spiritual milk, those whom Peter addresses will grow up into salvation. 
Church, it is a process. Our spiritual growth is a process in which we take part. Salvation, no. First and last, beginning to end, top to bottom. God's grace, period. Sanctification, we've got to apply ourselves to this and God tells us how to do it. It talks about growing towards Christian maturity. And I, if you're writing down Ephesians 4.15, I'm not gonna turn there. Ephesians 4.15, Colossians 1.10, 2 Peter 3.18, all of these have this idea about the, the growth towards spiritual maturity. That is what we're to be doing as Christian people. No matter what our circumstance, very important. No matter what our circumstance, we're to be progressing in our spiritual walk it is a process. And as I look back over my own life and see times when I was growing spiritually, they inevitably coincide with the times that I was spending the most time reading or hearing the Bible. Verse three. Indeed, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And Peter links their knowledge of the goodness of the Lord with the longing for his word. He links those two ideas. Do you know that the Lord is good? Yes, we know that the Lord is good. We should be hungry for that milk that solidifies that idea in our mind. He's also using this kind of language to point his readers back to the Psalms. And I will have you turn there, it's worthwhile. So when he says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, again, we have like a food reference. Let's turn back to Psalm 34. And I think this is Peter's had this verse in mind when he's trying to link these two things. Psalm 34, I'm gonna read verse eight and then I'm gonna read verses 12 to 19. But listen to what Psalm 34 verse eight says. See if you think that Peter might've been reflecting upon this. Psalm 34. Verse eight, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And let's look to verse 12. And I want you to just hear my voice or read along in the Bible. I want you to just hear these words, starting at verses 12 to 19. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? That's a question. He's asking the question. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? We can all raise our hand. Don't we all desire such things? Well, how do you do that, David, when you're writing this psalm? How do, we, how, do we, how do we go about accomplishing this? Verse 13, so practical, so practical. So many times I hear people say, oh, I read the Bible and I just can't really, I can't quite get what it's trying to tell me. Listen, listen, verse 13, how do we, how do, we do this? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. There's that word. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Did you hear that? Despite our circumstances, remember I said that a minute ago? Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Does anyone desire such things? I, I do. Peter is calling his people to put away these sins and run to him, to run to Christ. 
He is near the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit or the humble. So what can we take away from this passage of scripture? Two or three things. One, our sinful lifestyle habits and failure to love inhibit our blessings in life. Beloved, we are missing out on blessings by failing to put these sins away. In a sense, to love is to be free. And I, boy, when I wrote that sentence, I thought, I don't mean some 1960s definition of love. If we had the time doing a complete study on what Christian love means is a very worthwhile study. But to love is to be free, holding grudges, demeaning others, keeping tab on what other, others have versus what we have, being spiteful or fake, all of these things take energy and it is negative and it drains us both emotionally and spiritually. Love frees us. Is it easy? Not always. But in light of the alternative, it is a no-brainer. Jesus drew all people to himself. Listen to this. Jesus drew all people to himself by what? By his example, by loving by forgiving, that's how he drew people to himself. That's what caused the Pharisees to look at him and say, something is wrong with you. You are hanging out with prostitutes and tax collectors and drunkards. Why? He wasn't a hypocrite. He dealt with people where they were. Did he leave them there? No, he didn't pat him on the back. Again, Christian love is a, is a complex idea. But when Jesus was drawing people to himself, he was doing it through his example. He was saying, it's safe. I'm safe. Come to me. I'm not gonna leave you where you're at because I love you too much. I'm not gonna leave you there, but I'm also not gonna have that bony finger pointed in your face all the time. Shouldn't we desire to be that same example? Second, Failing to love or failing to put away these besetting sins hinders our joy and clouds our witness. Failing to put away these besetting sins hinders our joy and clouds our witness. The church gets so frustrated by the world acting like the world when what is hindering God's people is that the church isn't acting like the church. We get so frustrated. We stare out of our stained glass. We look out at the world and we go, oh, can you believe that? Look, look at that. The, the bony finger is, is stretched out. Look, look what they're doing. Why are we so surprised that the world acts like the world? Wouldn't it be better if we looked inward and said, you know what? Maybe the problem is the church isn't acting like the church. That bony finger of judgment I'm not saying we shouldn't judge behavior. Probably the most misinterpreted passage of scripture in today's day. Well, judge not lest you be judged. No. We are as Christian people to look at behavior and go, you know what? That's leading you down a path from which you will never recover. We do, ju we do judge behavior, but we do it in such a way as not pointing, pointing that bony finger, but saying, you know what? I was there. Come here. Let me, let me tell you about something. Let me tell you about my experience with, with what you're dealing with. Not like a Pharisee. Last, third, last point. 
Asking God to give us an insatiable, unquenchable desire for his word starts us down the right path. His words are life. They are nourishment. They are comfort. They give understanding. Like the protein in milk builds an infant's physical body, the nourishment of the word of God builds us into mature spiritual adults more able to weather the storms of life. Church, let us flee to him today. Let us confess our sins and repent of these sinful habits that distort our thinking and rob us of our peace, our joy, and our blessing. He is merciful and mighty to save. And to others, I might ask, do you even know him today? Do you know him today? And I'm gonna leave you with his words from Matthew 11. Listen to Christ Listen to Christ's words. This is not a Pharisee talking. This is the Son of God talking. Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Listen to this and remember who's talking. This is Jesus Christ talking. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find what? How many want that? In 2020, every, both hands of every individual should, should be raised. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Father, what do we say about such things? We are humbled by your word by the truth. Father, as we peer inside of ourselves, Father, and see these things that are our are, are daily struggles that we face, we pray for your Holy Spirit to reign in our lives. Father, I pray that you would give me and each one under my hearing an absolute insatiable thirst for your word. Father, it is by which we are built up Help us not to intentionally and negligently starve ourselves, Father, and rob ourselves of blessing. Guide and direct us into the way of the truth. Father, help us as Christian people go out with an example like Christ. Not with a bony finger of judgment, with an understanding and a, and a, and a message of forgiveness. Father, we stand on a precipice in this nation. It is dark outside of these walls. I pray that you would be with us, each one of us, that as we go out into the darkness, Father, that our lights would shine. And Father, we're not talking about sinless perfection, but Father, give us a heart of humility to help us to understand ourselves for who we are, not to act in a self-righteous way, but to go out and to be true light in darkness, Father. And as we do that, as we are filled with your word, as we are filled with your Holy Spirit, and we go out into a dark world, Father, your word will not return void. Help us, guide and direct us. Father, I thank you for this opportunity today. I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide each mind, including my own, that we would be obedient to your word. Father, for in that, is blessing. Guide and direct us in Jesus' name. Amen.